Such decisions are life decisions. You don't say after three months, oof, they don't like me, I'm going back. To pull up your roots and plant them in a foreign soil can be an adventure, but also a source of pain and with no turning back. This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard Abdul Razak Gurna, the 2021 Literature Laureate. He was awarded the prize for his uncompromising and compassionate penetration of the effects of colonialism and the fate of the refugee in the gulf between cultures and continents. Abdul Razak Gurna is the author of 10 novels and an emeritus professor of English and post-colonial literatures at the University of Kent. He's been hailed for his ability to convey the immigrant experience, but to him, literature is much more than just social commentary. We also read because it gives us pleasure. Sometimes it completely distracts us from other things we should be doing and thinking about. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Areces. In the conversation, Abdul Razak Gurner talks about fleeing his native Zanzibar as a teenager and feeling unwelcome after arriving in the UK. He also offers insights into his writing, how he explores thoughtful silences and lifts the small struggles that play out in otherwise mundane lives and settings. But first, he reflects on the different stages of his Nobel Prize experience so far. How have the last few months been since that day in October when you learnt the news of the prize? Uh, it varies. It isn't some uh, uniform thing. So at first it was uh, mostly news. So the journalist wanted to speak to me, really wanted to uh, ask the kind of newsy type questions rather than questions about the work. Then uh, I guess when it was no longer news in the same way, it was more kind of, uh, I suppose, more professional, more literary sorts of inquiries programs or articles or something like that. Now it's mostly to do with new publications. As a publication comes out in Romania, the press quite rightly want to, to interview me and to promote the, the publications and work. Uh, still dealing with the press, but now dealing with the press as part of um, kind of publication promotion as the edition is appearing wherever Denmark or several have appeared and more are coming. So, mm. so that's how it is at the moment. Given that previously you were publishing for basically an English language speaking audience first, at least the books were being published in the UK first and foremost, does it change things radically for you as you think about your readers as all these new nationalities come on board and start reading you? No, I don't think I thought that I was writing for a UK audience. In fact, I don't think I was thinking I was writing for any particular audience at all. And I guess uh, it was never a surprise to me if I, of course, I was delighted, but it was never a surprise to me if somebody wrote to me from Mexico and said, I just read your book and really enjoyed it, or, or asked me something about it. That's what I think writing and literature is. It's for everybody. In the same way as I might myself read a book by a Mexican novelist and, and engage with it and not worry about, is this Mexican or is this an Argentinian or whatever. So in that respect, it doesn't. I don't think of it differently, and I think it comes as a slight jolt of surprise when people say to me, 
this is uh, about a place we know nothing about. And I think, well, you know, it's not about a place. It's about other things, about ideas and relationships and concerns and so on. But that's not to say I might. I'm just saying it just sort of surprises me. But I understand that too. I mean, because that's what writing also is, that it brings us news about things we don't know about, uh, whether it's about place, about times, about a historical episode, ways of looking at things, perspectives, and so on. It's okay. It's okay for people to say that. <laughs> Abdul Razak Gurna's novels are often set in an East Africa tormented by colonial oppression or follow characters who've emigrated from this area at great personal cost. His latest novel, Afterlives, chronicles German colonialism in the early 1900s through the eyes of four people living on the coast of what is now Tanzania. Admiring Silence, a book he first published in 1996, follows the fate of a young man from Zanzibar who flees to England he finds work as a teacher and raises a family with an Englishwoman, all the while making up fantastical stories about his past. After 20 years, he returns, but his home is a very different place to the one he left. Gurner himself is not wholly pleased with being defined as a voice for colonised and displaced people. This is the context in which people tend to talk about your work. Is that what you intend when you write? Do you want people to interpret your work that way? No, I don't want people to interpret my work in that way in particular. It's just one of the issues and areas that I'm concerned with, and so it's quite right that uh, readers can choose to read and uh, kind of like embrace whichever or engage with whichever aspect of what they're reading as I do myself. But on the other hand, there are several other things going on, or in my mind anyway, when I'm writing this, and I'm glad to say that they also happen in other people's minds, so that not everybody reads for those, shall we say, social issues. When we read, I think all of us, as I said a moment ago, because we're learning something. We're being told something we didn't know before. Or indeed, we might simply be that we're being told in a way that we haven't heard before, a new way of thinking about things, a way of seeing things. It doesn't have to be just a completely new subject. But we also read because it gives us pleasure. It engages us in, at a different place from the place of rational or cognitive working out of our interests and concerns. It, it engages us and sometimes um, completely distracts us from other things we should be doing and thinking about. So there is pleasure in reading and pleasure in writing, but there is pleasure in reading, which is really, it seems to me, crucial to, to that moment that you spend with the work that you're reading. It isn't just because it's telling you, if you wanted that, you could go and read another kind of book about the problems facing refugees or issues to do with what governments are doing about it and so on. But I don't think that's why we go to read a work of literature, mm. which is not to say that we don't at the same time get the benefit of all of those other things. But it seems to me primarily it's that we are engaged by what we read because it's, it pleases us in a, in a different place from the place of simply information or knowledge. Staying with this, the concept of the pleasure of reading, interconnected with the pleasure of writing the story, a lot of what you write about is tragedy. These are terrible things that happen to people. How do you think about that mix of the awfulness of what's happening to some of your characters and the pleasure of the story, the pleasure derived from reading about that? Well, it isn't all awful <laughs> in the sense that what I'm often concerned with or interested in is seeing what it is that life hands out to people and to see how they then deal with that, how they cope with that. 
you obviously can't do that if you're starting with somebody who's totally content and nothing untoward is happening. All the plans that he or she has made have worked out and who would want to read a novel about that, <laughs> you know? So the starting point is the kind of dilemmas we as people, as human beings, find ourselves in. And this often is the starting point. Or shall I put it differently, that it is, it is in fact a more regular outcome, as it were, in life, that we have dilemmas to deal with of one kind or another, than that we are content and all our plans work out, etc. So really, it doesn't matter where you begin, as I see it, that wherever you begin, there is going to be something that this person that you're interested in is having to sort out. And I'm interested in that process too, or rather I am perhaps more interested in that process of, of how after experiences, after burdens, after traumas, people retrieve something from that and make something. So in that respect, you might say it's tragic, and the tragedy is part of life. I can agree to that and say, you know, that there are these various tragic moments, these encounters that have traumatic effects, one way or another. Some of them psychological and dealt with as you grow up, some of them impossible to deal with. And it seems to me that sort of dislocation or becoming a refugee as a result of war or violence, that these are kinds of traumatic experiences that it's almost impossible to say, okay, I'll just grow out of that. You know, these have to be dealt with in a different way if they're dealt with at all uh, successfully. Just to complicate, you say it's not that I write about tragic events, but I write, I think, about things that are commonplace, ultimately. And I'm interested in how, how people, if they are, how they are capable of retrieving something from those traumatic events. Abdul Razak Gurna was born in the Sultanate of Zanzibar, now part of Tanzania, in 1948. The island was then a protectorate of the British Empire. But after the British left in 1963, a violent revolution toppled the Sultan. More than 20,000 people were killed, and many Zanzibaris of Arab and Indian descent fled the island. Among them was the young Gurna, whose father was born in Yemen. You grew up in Zanzibar, which at least to European minds, has a kind of mythic quality about it, the exotic. As a child, can you just describe, you you were there until you were, what, 18, so can you just describe what it was like to be in before you had to leave? I've been wondering for a while, you know, why it is that as soon as you say Zanzibar, people think exotic or something like that. Well, I suppose it was in literature of old, it, it was seen as a sort of melting pot trading port, where cultures came and went and the exotic thrill of the spices and all that sort of thing. I, I suppose it's just been a trope for the exotic for a long time. Maybe, but I'm not even sure if people always know even that about it. Uh, anyway, my guess is that I think it's, it's those Zeds. <laughs> sort of, uh, they suggest something exceptional or unusual or something like that. What was it like? Well, it changed, of course, in 1964 with the revolution dramatically. But uh, before that, as I describe, I think much of what I write, because part of the reason for writing about the Zanzibar that was, is so that it's, in fact, to memorialise it, to remember it. So we lived in um, a part of the town called Malindi, which is right next to the ports. There are two ports, you see, they're not that big. It's not Rotterdam or anything like that. So there are two ports. One was the old port, which is where all the sailing craft go, and the other port is for ferries and... um, but the harbour itself is fairly shallow, so big ships would have to anchor 
in the roads, as it were, and then transfer onto lighters and motorboats and that kind of thing. But the more interesting part for us was the sailing boat area, which wasn't sailing boat in the way that you could see in the marinas, you know, Canary Wharf or something like that. These were ocean-going boats, which at certain times of the year will be traveling from Somalia, from South Arabia, from the Gulf, from Western India, any bit further uh, afield. And at certain times of the year, this area, which I'm calling the uh, sailing boat, will be as packed with its sailing ships. Some of them small, really without even a deck, just enough space for cargo. The sailors will sleep on the cargo for the several weeks that we take to travel down. Some of them because they're bringing animals. So the animals will be down there in this sort of space. But some of the huge, huge sailing ships, which are called boom, which were like those um, medieval galleons, you know, sort of like floors of decks. This was what the outside world was to us. And I say we lived in that area. So this was just out of the window. You can see all of this. <laughs> and as these people descended from their ships, they didn't bother staying anywhere. I mean, they didn't bother going to stay in a hotel and they just camped in any open space that was around. So the whole area will be taken over by these different languages and different songs and probably a lot of fighting going on as well because they kind of clashed with each other. So you had a view of the world that was already complicated but was also familiar because they came back every year and they stayed for three months and then the winds changed and then they went away and came back the following year. And so, Especially also because my father's work was to trade with these people. So these were his clients, I suppose. They would sell stuff to him and he would sell it to other people. All that changed after the revolution because that trade was immediately stopped. So all these people were turned away and never came back. And of course, there were different destinations available now because the Gulf was becoming wealthier and wealthier because of petroleum. And there was more work to be had there. Why would you come sell dried fish to Zanzibar if you could go and work in the Gulf? So for various reasons, that all went away. But for other reasons, after the revolution, there was a desire to um, kind of change, to ethnic cleanse the population to some extent. This was all happening in 1964. The years after 1964. So some of it was deliberate by actually saying people from Oman, over Mani, not from Oman, because some of them were generations of people from Oman. Now you've got to go because you're foreigners. So people were removed in this way and declared to be foreigners. Others, because their livelihood was taken away, Indian traders and merchants and so on. Yeah. So they had to leave because they couldn't work. Their businesses were taken over, they weren't allowed to trade, etc. Others, because they were removed from their jobs, so you had a family to look after, so people would go either to, to the continent, to Islam or Mombasa, or sometimes further afield. So there was a great dispersal, as I think of it, of people. So the population changed. Parts of the town became empty. In fact, part of the town became so empty that the houses were literally falling down because they were unoccupied. The kind of way of building houses in a place like Zanzibar is coral stone with mortar, but it has to be covered and renewed every soft. Because if there's a crack in the mortar and the water gets in, because it's not brick, then if the water gets in, the house collapses. I've read this term, coral stone, in your books, and I've wondered about it. This is bricks made from coral? No, no. It's literally coral rock, which is broken up. And so the way of building, instead of putting brick on top of brick, you put this coral stone on top of coral stone held together by mortar. Right. And so you have a wall, which is a wall of stone held together by mortar. And then on top of this, you put a, another layer of earth, mud, or whatever. And then you put a, a lime mortar on top of it, like you do, say, here, 
on top of the brick. But whereas here, if, if there's a crack on the outside, it only goes through to the brick. Because the inside is earth, if water gets in and is not repaired, the whole thing just collapses, the whole house collapses. So because people who lived in the town always looked after the houses, so you know, if there's a crack, you know, you get somebody to come and fix it. Yeah. Just a crack on the outside wall. But because nobody's living there, then in due course, you walk down streets and see walls have gone down, houses are unoccupied, which in a sense is a literal image, if you like, of dereliction of the fact that this town is dying. Mm. But of course, since then, tourism has taken over and everybody's house is now hotels. For you, I suppose, growing up with all this coming and going and this vision of the outside world, maybe uprooting yourself was, although awful, not so unexpected. Maybe you thought you might be part of that movement away at some point. But the movement away is different because, yes, people travelled a lot. Not everybody, but it wasn't unusual for people to travel. But the travelling was in that Indian Ocean area. And that is a historical as well as a kind of contemporary reality, really, even today, that people travel and share all kinds of things in that area that I've described already, because of East Africa, Somalia, South Arabia, the Gulf area, Western India, etc. So this is a, a long-running, centuries-old web of traveling, culture, of languages, religions, etc. So I suppose if I had thought that I would be traveling, I assumed I would be traveling in that same kind of circuit as somebody else did. Whereas traveling to Europe was still, when I left, it isn't anymore because you know the world has changed in this last 50 years. But at that time, it would still have been a, a very, very long journey, a very long distance. I guess in some ways it still is, although the travel distance isn't long, but in other ways it's still a very long distance for people to travel. Now it's more likely that you'll be traveling to join a community that already exists in these places, so you wouldn't be going and finding yourself the only person from Zanzibar within 500 miles or something. <laughs> and is that how you found yourself? Well, that's how it felt, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's how it felt. Um, I know that there were Zanzibar people in London, but I wasn't in London. And I think that same thing would be true uh, of people who didn't live near a large community like that. What was that like? Uh, mixed. It was mixed. Uh, I mean, at first, it was, of course, 18-year-old. It was an adventure. It was going to a new place. and So much to see and learn and understand. Scary because you don't know, as any stranger, you don't know how things work. Uh, you're afraid of doing something stupid, of getting lost, of not having the right money, that kind of thing. Not knowing how to eat using these tools that they do. So adventures, anxiety, and... As you learned to see what was going on around you, because at first I probably didn't really understand everything that was going on around me, you also realized, or I also realized, that actually I wasn't welcoming. I wasn't just a stranger, but not a particularly welcome stranger either. So this then makes the experience anxious in a different way as well. And then you have to learn to cope with that. That is awful that you felt unwelcome. At that time when I, uh, when I arrived in 1967, it coincided with the arrival of the, the Asian people, as they were called, people of Indian ancestry, who were not being forced necessarily, who were choosing to leave in large numbers from East Africa. Yes, exactly. And they were arriving, the newspapers were full of these images of people coming off the planes, you know, in proper clothing, coming here with their British passports, which they didn't know or realize, in fact, didn't allow them 
the right of residence in Britain, but they assumed they did. There's a special passport that were given to people from India, in East Africa in particular. But they had a little thing in there, which was called a D notice, which meant that they could travel using this passport, but they could not live in the UK. But they'd soon discovered that that was the case. <laughs> yeah. So it coincided with that, and it coincided with pretty soon after that, with the expulsion of the Indian people from Uganda. Yes, exactly, yes. It coincided with the change in the law in 1968 to restrict immigration from the Commonwealth. So you have to be a white person from the Commonwealth now to have a right of entry into the UK. In other words, you had to show that there was a familial connection in the long term, term as well, which is a way of simply saying, we don't want black people here. We want people who are kind of like grandchildren or great-grandchildren or something like that. So all of these were ways of responding to a panic that was going on at the time, which, in a sense, culminated in that notorious speech by Powell in 1968. On April 20th, 1968, British MP Enoch Powell spoke at a political meeting in Birmingham, lambasting mass immigration of people from the Commonwealth to the United Kingdom. He quoted one of his constituents as having said that, in this country in 15 or 20 years' time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. Powell was dismissed from the shadow cabinet, but his speech fueled xenophobic sentiments when he compared the welcoming of Commonwealth citizens into the UK to watching a nation busily engaged in heaping up its own funeral pyre. How strong of you and all the others who managed to make your home here in the UK against that backdrop? Well, I mean... For a lot of people, there is no choice. Uh, <clears throat> what I mean by that is that these kinds of moves, migrating, in my case, of course, it was already too late because I'd already broken the law, so I couldn't turn around and say, whoops, I think I made a mistake, because you weren't allowed to leave, so you had to leave by illegal ways. Escape, as we used to say. How, d how did you escape? Well, you bought a, a plane with papers which were not issued by the government, but issued some other way, which I will not talk about. And you arrive in the UK and say, I'm a tourist. I'm coming here the tourist. Those were easier times than now. So it was possible to do that. You come in and say, I'm a tourist. You register for, which is what we did, we, my brother and I. You register at a college as a student. You then apply for a student visa. As I said, those were kind of times. Then you get a student visa and then you study. That's how we did it. Hmm. But it does mean that you can't then turn around at some point and say, all right, no, this is not working. I'm going back. Plus, he didn't have any money anyway, because he spent all the money to do that, so there's no money to do it. But more regularly, I'm not talking about people who are like asylum seekers and refugees. I'm thinking of people who choose to migrate, say, like people from the West Indies or people from India or Pakistan or elsewhere. Such decisions are life decisions. You say, I'm going to do this. You don't say after three months, oof, they don't like me, I'm going back. Because what are you going back to? The reasons for wanting to do it in the first place still exist wherever it was that you left. Plus, you've probably had to fight against other people's opinions to say, no, this is the right decision, I'm doing this. And to say, I made a mistake, you're not going to do that. So once people have made decisions like this, they have to make them work. Hmm. They have to make sure that, that it works out. Possibly, even if in the long run they intend to return, they have to wait till they've got something to say, look, this is what I did it for. Now I'm coming home and I've made my fortune as well. I've made something happen by which time it's probably too late for you to say anything like that. So really, there is a kind of bind that once you're launched as it were in this way, then you have to see it through. Yeah. So if there's hostility or if there are difficulties, you cope. You get on with it. 
which is also what happens to all these people, these refugees and asylum seekers. If they're given an opportunity, then you find the stories abound. They open a business, they doctors, they say, you know, if the opportunities are made available. So it's one of the things I admire about us human beings, that resilience, that people come from all kinds of difficulties. Given an opening, if not them, their children, make a life, make something out of it. Yeah. It's what I meant really about retrieving something from trauma. Yes, indeed. Not something you ever recover from, but you can make a life and you can make a very successful life. Just as an aside, when I was very young, I taught refugees from Uganda in southern Sudan, and they had had disrupted lives. They were doing O-levels and A-levels back then when they were in their early 20s. You know, they'd lost a lot of time. Sure. But goodness, they have made successes of themselves in so many cases. That's what I mean. The fact that you, as an immigrant, the fact that that never stops being part of you, does that mean that you want to go on telling that story in particular? Because you do tell that story a lot, again and again, and Mm -hmm. it obviously matters tremendously. Well, I don't know if I would completely agree that I do tell the story again and again, but there are certain things that, as a writer, I find myself returning to. If you were to ask me to tell you what each of those novels is after what it's interested in, it wouldn't be the same thing. It might be, if it, um, let me take an example, something like Admiring Silence is about the way in which people who find themselves in displaced or dislocated, how they're free in a way to tell the stories of their lives differently because the people they're telling their stories to don't know any different. Can't say, oh no, it wasn't really like that. There isn't the kind of thing that would happen if you're still living in the community you grew up in where there would be competing versions of stories. So you can, if you want, just sort of tell your story to remove all the snaggy bits and all the unpleasant bits and the shaming bits. Just tell your story differently. But at some point, there's going to, a point is going to come where the stories, which are now lies, of course, but you had not intended to lie. You're just intending to give as best a picture of yourself as you could. When these lies become so entangled that they're a problem, say you might meet somebody who's from the old place, or you might be in a relationship where questions arise, where, well, I would like to meet your parents, I would like to meet this, that kind of thing. So that, of course, is about an immigrant's life, but that's not the point. The point really is about how, in some situations, we reconstruct ourselves in ways which are apparently innocent, but which really end up, in the end, being very, very complicated and troublesome. And very often, there is no way of telling the truth. So what is true, what is not true, becomes problematic. I write often about the way families work, regardless. I write about how silence works, both as a defense and also as a corrupting thing. So there are different ways. So my primary concern really is not about an immigrant's life, but I know about that. It's part of my experience. It's part of what my mind and my imagination is attuned to. So quite often I find myself returning to these areas, even to these areas geographically. But that's not my primary concern. It's just that I end up there, whether I want to or not, because these are the things that are, as it were, lurking in my imagination, in my mm. mind. Let me just pick up on that silence comment, thinking of, for instance, Hamza in Afterlives, who often confronts situations with silence and just waits to see what's going to happen next. You strike me as somebody who probably uses silence yourself. You seem very calm. Is it a reflection of a, of a way you approach things? 
Well, possibly. I find for myself, just for a moment, I find that it's always best to, to wait and to listen and even to reflect a little bit before you, you come back and reply. But I see uh, the silence that I give to my various figures, as you were in these novels. They work in different ways. For some of them, for like somebody like Hamza, silence is also a kind of uh, humility which comes out of defeat. And maybe that's where my silence comes from as well, I don't know. But it's the kind of humility where you know that if you just blurt things out, that you're going to get into more difficulties. So it's better to be silent and wait. And sometimes silence can be misconstrued as agreement. And that's okay, because it means you don't have to fight too hard, uh, especially if it's not something that matters. So sometimes silence where your life or your anything is at risk is best, because then the moment passes and life goes on. In other cases, silence is the only defense because dignity is at stake. And in the case of something like uh, Saleh Omar in By the Sea, the asylum seeker who arrives and is being interrogated by somebody being misunderstood, and instead of trying to explain himself, he chooses to be silent. Because there's no way I can explain to you, sir, unless I tell you the story of my life. I can't explain to you what my situation is, so think what you like. And the best defense for me is to just keep my, uh, you know, my sense of myself to myself. There's a, an image that I like in one of the stories of Joyce's stories in Dublin, his stories Arabic, in which he, the boy, speaks of carrying his chalice through the throngs. And I think of silence as something like that. You know, you carry yourself like a chalice through the throng. So it becomes a way of, of retaining and not contesting uh, an idea of who you are, but retaining a sense of it so that it's not there to be fought over, for you to say, you are like this, you are like that. Of course, silence can also be intimidating. I'm enthralled by your different visions of silence. That vision of silence seems to be very much at odds with the kind of shrill pitch of the world at the moment. Everybody firing off at each other through social media and just, there's a lot of noise out there. Do you feel that? Do you feel that you're maybe championing something that is a little bit otherworldly these days? Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm championing, but I do find myself retreating from all that noise, as you say. Hmm. So, yeah, I grew up in a small island. I live in a small town, and I like these things. But also, I think uh, my way of thinking about writing is also to write about, how should I put it, about, I don't write about heroes. I write about small people, anyway. And as I said, you know, that I write about people who are having to come to terms and cope with things that have befallen them often. So I do think of myself as somebody who, who likes small towns, small people, small events, subdued views of the world as well as possible, so thoughtful ways of thinking about how we cope with things. And I suppose that approach encapsulates, in a way, much of what you write about in the way that the vast swathe of colonial ambition impacted people living just their lives in these places in Africa. Sure. I mean, if you take afterlives, it was very much the idea that there's all this going on in their world, which they can't stop. It's too powerful. But in the first place, they find ways of moving within what is taking over their circumstances. And as it moves away, it really becomes less and less their concern. So they become the news of events that are going on, even though they're going on only a short while away. In the case of Hamza, of course, he's in the midst of it somehow by accident, or shall we say by a mistake mm. that he makes. And also because they don't all understand what's going on. But also they get on as much as possible with their own lives. 
is not very possible because, as you know, the result of European colonialism in, in the world, but certainly in that part of Africa, was to transform it so that it becomes completely different, not only in terms of uh, aspiration and ambition and you know everyday life, but in fact, even in terms of what you might call the place and what constitutes this nation as opposed to that nation and so on. Let me finish on a rather enormous question, which is, was that transformation good in any way? Uh, well, I don't know if that is a, a question that can be answered or that I can answer. Clearly, there's some benefits, some gains in opening up another world. But there was a world they belonged to already, which is that Indian Ocean world that I tried to describe. That came to an end to a certain extent, not completely, but it came to an end. And now the world was opened in the other direction. And as a result of that, it seems to me, a whole new difficulties and problems were also opened up about resources, about the, the coast now is totally marginalized by these states, Kenya, Tanzania, and so on, it's marginal to, to the real life in a way that it wasn't marginal to itself before, you see what I mean? So, okay, there are benefits. There always are, but they're kind of like asides in many ways. But you can't argue, you can't turn things back. So here we are, we've got to move on and see what we make. Well, that seems to be the theme of this conversation. You deal with what life hands you and you describe it beautifully. So thank you very, very much indeed for talking to me. Okay, thanks. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Abdul Razak Gurna, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Cardin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yulier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for more listening, check out our earlier conversation with Wale Soyinka, who in 1986 became the first Nobel Prize Literature Laureate from the African continent. You can find previous seasons and conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.